0: October 1, 2017. It's a date burned into the memories of both Las Vegas residents and visitors. On that day, the Vegas Strip, a spot normally associated with fun and frivolity, became a site of terror for thousands attending a country music festival. From his suite on one of the high rooms at a nearby hotel, a gunman opened fire on the crowd, and in doing so, committed what would become the worst mass shooting in modern U.S. history. Dozens were killed, hundreds wounded, and the city of Las Vegas shaken to the core. But who would perpetrate such an attack, and why? What was the response from the city, the country, and the world? And how has Las Vegas healed since this horrific incident? That's what you'll find out in this episode of Sin City Stories as we take a deep dive into 10-1-17. Since its founding on May 15, 1905, Las Vegas has gone from being a small railway stop on the Union Pacific Line in the middle of the Mojave Desert, to the entertainment capital of the world, and one of the most exciting cities on the planet, welcoming millions of visitors every year. And through its relatively short history, the city has seen some pretty interesting things, and that's what I'm here to share with you. Welcome to Sin City Stories the fascinating, bizarre, and sometimes tragic history of fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. Steven Paddock arrived at the Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas late afternoon on September 25th after making the 70 mile drive from his home in Mesquite, Nevada just north of the city. He checked into the suite he'd reserved, room 32135, and booked the connecting room, under his girlfriend's name, for later in the week. After eating in one of the restaurants, he moved his car from Self Park to the valet, where a bellman helped him bring several bags up to the room. Designated as a high roller, thanks to his extensive play and frequency of visit, Paddock received VIP treatment. Accompanied by the bellman, he was able to use a service elevator, normally designated for staff only, to take his luggage up to his suite. That evening, Paddock made the drive from Las Vegas back to Mesquite, where he stayed until the following day. On the afternoon of September 26, Paddock transferred $50,000 to a bank in the Philippines, where his girlfriend was from, and then, later that night, he left Mesquite for Las Vegas. And, after making a stop at the Ogden in downtown Las Vegas, where he'd also rented a room, he returned to Mandalay Bay, where a bellman helped him take six more suitcases up to his suite. Just before 11.30 that night, Paddock headed downstairs to the Mandalay Bay's high roller video poker room, where he played until around 7.15 the following morning. At around 4 p.m. on September 27th, Paddock ordered room service. Then a few short hours later, at around 8.15 p.m., he left the Mandalay Bay, once again made a short stop at the Ogden, and then drove back home to Mesquite, arriving in the town at around 10 p.m., where he once again spent the night. The next day, on the afternoon of September 28th, he transferred another $50,000 to the bank in the Philippines, purchased a rifle from a gun store in Mesquite, and following a stop at a local shooting range, headed back to Las Vegas, going straight to the Mandalay Bay, arriving at around 9.45 p.m. Once again, a bellman helped him take more luggage to his suite, two suitcases this time, and by 10.20 p.m., Paddock was back in the casino playing video poker. At around 5.45 a.m. on the morning of September 29th, Paddock stopped gambling and went up to his room. That afternoon, he checked into the connecting room, room 32134. Late that night, he ordered room service to that room, and then a couple of hours later, at around 1 a.m., he made the drive to Mesquite, returning to Vegas just before 6 a.m. the following morning. At some point after 12.15 p.m. on September 30th, Paddock placed Do Not Disturb signs on the doors of both rooms he was occupying. Then, several hours later, he made what would be his final drive out to Mesquite, arriving at his home at around 9 p.m. At around 2 a.m. on the morning of October 1st, Paddock left Mesquite, arriving back at the Mandalay Bay just after 3 a.m. From 3.30 to 7.30 a.m., Paddock walked around the casino and gambled after which he went back up to his room. Later that day at around 12.25 p.m., Paddock again moved his car from the self-parked garage where he'd left it to the valet. Shortly thereafter, he was seen getting on the elevator with two more suitcases and a third bag hanging from the handle of one of the cases. Once he arrived back in his rooms, Paddock once again ordered room service, which was delivered at around 1.30 p.m. According to hotel security, over an approximately five-hour period, from 2.25 p.m. to 7.40 p.m. The doors on the two rooms Paddock was occupying were manipulated multiple times. They were open and closed several times, and the deadbolt locks were engaged and disengaged repeatedly. An hour later, a series of events began to unfold, leading up to one of the greatest tragedies to ever occur in Las Vegas, and indeed, the United States. 8.40 p.m., a so-called hot SOS alarm is generated from room 32129 in the Mandalay Bay, just down the hall from the two rooms occupied by Stephen Paddock. This type of alarm occurs when a room door is left open for a long period of time and signals to security that there may be an issue. Roughly 45 minutes later, at 9.18 p.m., Security Officer Jesus Campus is assigned five hot SOS calls, including the one for room 32129, which Campus checks last. At 9.36 p.m., the deadbolt for room 32135, the suite occupied by Stephen Paddock is engaged. And shortly thereafter, the deadbolt for the connecting room, also occupied by Paddock, is engaged. At 9.40 p.m., headliner Jason Aldean begins his performance at the Route 91 Harvest Festival, just across Las Vegas Boulevard at the Las Vegas Village site. At 9.46 p.m., Officer Campus enters the service elevator and takes it up to the 30th floor, where he gets off at 9.47 p.m. He goes to the stairwell and walks up to the 32nd floor. Oddly, Campus discovers he can't access that floor from the stairwell. The door is barricaded. Campus takes the stairs up one floor to the 33rd floor, where he walks down the hallway and takes the guest elevator down to the 32nd floor. At 10 p.m., Campus steps off the guest elevator and heads towards room 32129, the site of the hot SOS alarm, and finds that room to be secure. He then checks the door leading to the stairwell that he was previously unable to open where he discovers an L-bracket screwed into the door and door frame. At 10.04 p.m., Campus uses a house phone located in the foyer leading to that stairwell and calls security dispatch to inform them of the L-bracket on the door. Security transfers the call to maintenance dispatch, who then transfer the call to the maintenance supervisor's cell phone. At 10.05 p.m., engineer Steven Shook is contacted by maintenance dispatch via his radio and sent to investigate the L-bracket as reported by Jesus Campus, and is sent to the 32nd floor. At that same time, Steven Paddock fires two single gunshots into the Las Vegas village area. One minute later, as Officer Campus hangs up the phone and ends his call with the maintenance team, he hears what he'd later describe as rapid drilling noises. The sound he was hearing was, in fact, the sound of Steven Paddock firing roughly 100 rounds in a 10-second burst down at the Route 91 Harvest Festival, where celebration was giving way to terror. The headline on a July 17, 2014 media release from Live Nation Entertainment blared, Inaugural Route 91 Harvest takes root among the neon as first country music festival ever to launch in Las Vegas. The very first edition of Route 91 Harvest, a three-day country music event to be held on the lot across from the Luxor, later known as Las Vegas Village, featured a star-studded lineup including the likes of Jason Aldean, Miranda Lambert, Blake Shelton, Dirk Bentley, Brantley Gilbert, and many others. In an interview with the Las Vegas Review-Journal, prior to the first festival, event founder Brian O'Connell said he chose the name Route 91 because, quote, it just sounded cool. Before it was lined with casinos and mega resorts, Las Vegas Boulevard was, in fact, part of U.S. Route 91, a stretch of highway that, until the mid-1970s, ran from Long Beach, California, all the way to the U.S.-Canada border, north of Sweetgrass, Montana. Nobody knew it, and that's what I love about it, O'Connell said. You can always discover something new right in front of you. Something old has become new. There's more to it than just a stage and a parking lot with a bunch of bands. In the years following its launch, Route 91 Harvest would become one of the premier country music festivals in the US. It attracted big stars and even bigger crowds, with thousands of people cramming into the festival site each day to take in the show and enjoy the party with their fellow country music fans. 1st, 2017, the party would come to an end for Route 91 Harvest in an absolutely horrific way. It was the last day of the festival, and following a full day of performances from the likes of Kane Brown, Luke Combs, Big & Rich, and Jake Owen, the crowd was pumped up for the night's headliner, Jason Aldean. It was 10.05 p.m. Aldean was just a few songs into his set, and had just started singing his hit, When She Says Baby when a long series of very fast pops was heard. Lasting almost 10 seconds, Aldine stopped singing and was rushed off the stage. Initially, there was confusion. Although some believed it was gunfire, others thought the noise was firecrackers being set off by people in the audience or the end of festival fireworks, and nobody was sure where the noise was coming from. A few people got down on the ground and others slowly started to make their way out of the stage area to avoid being caught in a mad rush. 30 seconds later, when the noise started again, there was no question, somebody was shooting. And that was when all hell broke loose. People began screaming, running in multiple directions, not exactly sure where to go, being that nobody knew for sure where the shooter was. They just knew they had to find cover and they had to make their way to safety. That second volley of shots lasted another 10 seconds. It was 10 more seconds of terror as people got down on the ground hoping to protect themselves and others from the bullets that were flying. When there was finally a pause in the shooting, people stood up and started to run again, trying to make their way away from the scene. But just 17 seconds later, more gunfire began raining down, the ground around them thudding with bullets. At that point, panic festival goers began flooding Las Vegas' 911 system. Dispatchers reported dozens of calls holding as they sent out the word to first responders, it's an active shooter. In the same way that festival goers didn't know exactly where the gunfire was coming from, there was also confusion among security officers as well. Armed security from Mandalay Bay headed outside in search of a shooter in the vicinity. However, the first police units to arrive at the scene immediately came under fire with one officer being shot and wounded while others scrambled to take cover behind their vehicles. As 911 dispatchers were receiving more calls with unconfirmed reports of multiple shooters at other hotels in the area, including the Tropicana and Luxor, warnings began coming over police radios. Be aware, it's automatic fire fully automatic fire from an elevated position. Take cover. As more first responders arrived, they assisted in trying to get concert goers to cover and administer first aid to those who'd been hit, all while gunfire continued to rain around them. At one point during the chaos, a group of about 300 people broke through the fences at Las Vegas' McCarran International Airport, about a mile east of the concert. They'd run there in search of safety and help. Initially, airport authorities thought the people crashing the fence were attackers, but instead, they found victims shot, bleeding, and hysterical. Those people were moved to secure locations on airport property where they could be given assistance and medical attention, all while air traffic control diverted multiple flights away from the airport to prevent people on the tarmac from being injured by aircraft and to take away the risk that the shooter may begin firing at planes flying past. Meanwhile, back at the Las Vegas Village site, as quickly as it had started, the shooting came to a stop. Only 10 minutes had passed since that initial string of gunfire, but it had been 10 minutes of pure hell. And now it was clear to see exactly how extensive the carnage was. Victims who'd been wounded by gunfire and were still able to move had spread out into areas surrounding the Route 91 festival, including into nearby hotels where they were now receiving first aid. The sound of sirens wailed as police, fire, and ambulances made their way in and out of the site, shuttling victims to local hospitals, which had activated their mass casualty plans. Personal belongings were scattered all over the site, dropped as people ran for cover. There were holes in tents and fences, as well as small craters all over the ground where bullets had impacted. But worst of all, there were bodies dozens of victims who'd been struck down by gunfire were laying in the grassy area in front of the stage as well as other spots around the concert site. After security officer Jesus Campus finished his call with maintenance, he turned and began to walk towards the central elevators. At that moment, Steven Paddock fired several shots through the door of his suite and down the hallway at Campus. Campus was struck in the leg by bullet fragments and took cover in the alcove between rooms 32124 and 32122. Campus then radioed his dispatcher and told him, hey, there's shots fired in uh, 32135. At that same moment, maintenance engineer Steven Shook was on his way to the 32nd floor to check on the L-bracket that had been attached to the door and door frame, providing access to the stairwell. At 10.07pm, within a one minute span, Haddock fires almost 300 rounds into the crowd at Route 91. 95 rounds, then 100 rounds, then 94 more rounds, with short breaks between the bursts of gunfire. At 10.08 p.m., Paddock fires several times at large fuel tanks located on the property at McCarran International Airport, missing five times and striking the tanks three times. He then returns to firing on the Route 91 festival site, unleashing an undetermined number of rounds. At 10.10 p.m., Shook arrives on the 32nd floor and begins making his way from the central elevators towards the wing where the barricaded door was located, which was the same wing as Paddock's suite. As he walked, Shook heard what he believed to be a jackhammer sound in the distance. He quickly realized that what he was hearing was gunfire. And when it stopped, security officer Campus, who was still in the alcove by a pair of room doors, yelled at Shook to take cover. Shook ducked into the alcove between rooms 32117 and 32119. And as he did so, Paddock fired more rounds through his suite door down the hallway. The shots missed and Shook attempted to access room 32117 using his master key card, only to find the deadbolt engaged. At that point, Shook radioed maintenance control. Shannon, call the police. Someone's firing a rifle on the 32nd floor down the hallway. At 10.11pm, two officers from the Metro Las Vegas Police Department arrived at the central elevator area of the 31st floor and began walking down the hallway towards the 100 wing of the Mandalay Bay. At that time, Paddock fired another 80-100 to rounds into the Route 91 festival site, shortly followed by another 95 rounds. At 10.12 p.m., two armed Mandalay Bay security officers exited the guest elevator on the 32nd floor and went to the central elevators. Paddock fires another 80 to 90 rounds into the Las Vegas village. He follows that up shortly with an unknown amount of gunfire. A Mandalay Bay security officer on the floor below advises over his radio, We can hear rapid fire above us. We're on the 31st floor. We can hear it above us. Between 10.13pm and 10.15pm, Paddock fires at the Route 91 festival again. Three separate volleys of gunfire. An unknown number of rounds. At 10.16pm, two Las Vegas Metro Police officers enter the stairwell on the 31st floor along with Mandalay Bay security officers. 10.18pm, the heat detection indicator from Paddock's suite, room 32135, detected no further readings from inside the room. Almost 20 minutes later, at 10.41pm, a strike team makes its way up the stairs from the 30th floor the team makes entry and clears the 31st floor of the hotel. At 10.56 p.m., the strike team re-enters the stairwell and heads up to the 32nd floor. One minute later, a canine sergeant and SWAT officer manually breached the door that had been barricaded by the L-bracket. At 11.20 p.m., the strike team conducted an explosive breach into room 32135 and made entry, where they discovered Steven Paddock dead from an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. 11.26 p.m., the strike team makes a second explosive breach from inside room 32135 to room 32134 via the connecting doors. After searching that room, the strike teams declare the area safe and secure the scene so that officers can begin their investigation. Gunfire at Route 91 might have stopped, but for staff at one Las Vegas area hospital, the rush to save lives was only just beginning. Sunrise Medical Center, the largest hospital in the city, located just east of the Las Vegas Strip, had rehearsed for things like this before, but they were about to be forced to put those plans into action. The radio used to alert the hospital to incoming casualties was blaring. Doctors on duty struggled to understand exactly what was being said when they heard, Prepare for a mass casualty incident. Dr. Kevin Menace, an ER doctor, was on duty that night. When word of exactly what had happened began to break, Menace sprung into action, ordering supplies in preparation for the arrival of patients. Admin staff began running through phone lists, calling in anyone they could get. And nurses cleared the ER and opened curtains to all the trauma bays. Initially, Dr. Menace wasn't sure how many victims they'd see at sunrise. 50? 100? 100? 500, he'd soon have his answer. The wounded arrived in waves. The first victims began arriving one or two at a time, brought in by police cars, by rideshare drivers, taxis, and even private vehicles loaded into the backs of pickup trucks and minivans. Then the ambulances began arriving, abandoning protocol and loading upwards of five or six people at a time, all with varying degrees of injury, ranging from green tags walking wounded who were stable and could be managed with pain medication and water, to yellow tags, those seriously injured victims who could be stabilized, to red tags, the most gravely injured, those on the brink of death who may only have minutes to live. In most cases, doctors only had seconds to assess each patient as they arrived. In a 40-minute span, Dr. Menes saw about 150 patients, one-third of which were red tags. Dr. Menace had started out in the ambulance bay of the hospital, assessing patients as they were being unloaded. But as victim numbers began to increase and things were stacking up inside the hospital, Menace shifted his attention to the ER. All he saw was blood. Patients were scattered everywhere. Green tags were sitting on chairs and wheelchairs with arms and legs draped over desks and counters as nurses and doctors warned them to keep their wounds elevated. Transporters were attempting to put as many patients into trauma bays as possible. Built to hold only one red tag at a time, some bays held upwards of six people. Victims kept coming, patients kept crashing, and doctors kept working to save lives. Operating rooms were full as surgeons rushed to repair gunshot wounds. However, to completely repair one patient's injuries might mean having another patient bleed out and die. So surgeons did the bare minimum, find the hole, stop the bleeding, seal the incision with a sponge, and move on to the next victim. There was no time for staples or stitches. In the trauma ICU, doctors did only the briefest of exams. Neurosurgeons leaned down and shined a small flashlight in their eyes. If their pupils were fixed, wide, and black, there was little they could do. They'd test for pain stimulus by jabbing a key under the patient's fingernail or pressing the notch of the patient's eye sockets. If there was a reaction, those victims took priority in the OR. Those who couldn't be saved, or were already lost by the time they arrived at sunrise, were sent to a makeshift morgue in a gastrointestinal lab adjacent to the operating rooms. Inside, FBI staff and forensics agents were working, trying to identify victims by their fingerprints, as most had arrived without any sort of ID. Once they were identified, doctors would make those painful phone calls to families. The cycle of assessment, intubation, stabilization, surgery, crashing, and reviving would repeat itself for several hours into the early morning of October 2nd. Finally, at around 4 a.m., the ER began to slow. Red tags had been moved in and out of the OR. Almost every yellow tag had been stabilized, and as the morning shift of ER doctors began to arrive, they treated the green tag patients who remained. On an average day, Sunrise Medical Center's ER treats 300 people. On a busy day, that number might surge up to 350. But on October 1st, the heroes in that same ER treated 199 patients in a span of just six hours. As the world began to wake up to the terror of what had happened at the Route 91 festival in Las Vegas, people wanted to know, how can I help? A city believed to be more spectacle than substance, more entertainment than empathy, better known for sin and excess than kindness and caring, completely changed the world's view in less than 24 hours following the worst mass shooting in modern US history. This tragedy was the catalyst to an outpouring of support the likes of which Las Vegas had never seen before. People stood in line for upwards of six hours waiting to donate blood and plasma for use by victims who were still in hospital. Food and water donations piled up outside evacuation centers and hospitals. Online fundraisers quickly reached and exceeded their goals with one victim's fund hitting $4.2 million. Lyft and Uber drivers offered free rides to anyone who'd been displaced by the shooting. Volunteers and grief counselors had to be turned away at the victim's family resource center because too many people had shown up and they'd reached their capacity. Local restaurants and bars began making care packages and delivering food to fire stations, police stations, and emergency rooms. The night after the shooting, candlelight vigils were held at multiple spots around the city. The lights of the famed Vegas strip went dark in honor of the victims. And the welcome to fabulous Las Vegas sign, located at the south end of Las Vegas Boulevard, usually a happy place where tourists stand in line to pose for photos, became a makeshift memorial with flowers, cards, and messages left in honor of those who were lost at Route 91. Four days after the shooting, Illinois artist Greg Zanis, founder of Crosses for Losses, who'd spent his retirement creating crosses and other memorials in honor of victims lost in tragedies, including bombings and mass shootings, loaded 58 crosses into the back of his truck and made the two-day drive from Chicago to place the crosses at the Welcome to Las Vegas sign in the shadow of Mandalay Bay. On October 10th, the Vegas Golden Knights, the city's new NHL team, hosted their inaugural regular season home opener at T-Mobile Arena, just a few blocks north of where the shooting had happened. The team held a 15-minute pregame ceremony where they introduced, by name, doctors, EMTs, firefighters, nurses, and police officers who'd responded to the Route 91 tragedy. Before puck drop, Golden Knights defenseman Derek England, who called Las Vegas home even before signing with the team, gave a stirring speech thanking the first responders for their work and telling fans that the team would do anything they could to help the city heal. England declared, we are Vegas strong. As the city of Las Vegas began to heal and come to grips with the tragedy they'd endured, people wanted to know, why? What would motivate someone to inflict this much pain, this much suffering on so many innocent lives? It was a question that the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department and the FBI wanted to answer. And doing so would take time. Stephen Paddock was a retired, antisocial, twice-divorced man who'd made his money from real estate. He'd owned large properties in several states, including apartment complexes, and had, at one time, operated a real estate business with his brother. After he retired, Paddock took up gambling. Video poker was his game, and he was good at it. He knew how to read pay tables and figure out which machines would pay off. IRS records show he'd played and won millions of dollars over the years, hence his status as a high roller at Mandalay Bay and several other casinos across the US. According to investigators, Paddock had no criminal history at all. He had had zero interaction with law enforcement, not even a traffic stop. His only real experience with the legal system had been a lawsuit he'd filed against the Cosmopolitan Hotel in Las Vegas following a slip and fall, a case which was tossed from court in 2014. Neither the FBI or Las Vegas Metro were able to uncover ties between Paddock and any kind of extremist or militia groups. They were unable to find any evidence that Paddock supported or followed any hate groups or domestic or foreign terrorist organizations. And despite interviewing several of Paddock's family members, friends, contacts, and gambling acquaintances, they couldn't link him to any specific ideology. From what they were able to ascertain, Paddock had acted entirely alone in his attack on the Route 91 festival. That being said, witnesses who'd had interactions with Paddock in the days and weeks leading up to the attack said he had gone on several anti-government tirades. A man who'd met Paddock in a parking lot to arrange the purchase of several auto sears, which allow a semi-automatic assault rifle to fire like a fully automatic weapon, stated that he repeatedly criticized the government, saying that the FEMA camps following Hurricane Katrina was a dry run for military and law enforcement to start taking guns. Sometimes, Paddock added, sacrifices need to be made. Detectives had also spoken with a woman who overheard what she believed to be a conversation between Paddock and another man while out for dinner on September 28th, just days before the shooting. According to the witness, the two were discussing the standoffs at Waco and Ruby Ridge and were angry about the ATF and the federal government in general. After hitting a brick wall on that avenue, investigators turned their attention to Stephen Paddock's financial situation. Could the attack have been the act of a man desperate to escape impending financial collapse? The simple answer, no. A financial analysis did find that Paddock's bank accounts, of which he had 14, had seen a large drop in value between September 2015 and September 2017, from just under $2.1 million to $530,000. Most of that decline had happened in 2017, Paddock had paid off $600,000 in gambling debt to casinos, over $130,000 to credit card companies, and $13,000 to the IRS. Paddock had also made almost $95,000 in firearms and gun-related purchases. Another dead end in searching for a motive. That's not to say, however, that their investigation was not eye-opening. Authorities did discover several chilling facts. Paddock owned several guns, which isn't all that unusual. From 1982 through to the fall of 2016, he purchased 29 firearms, including handguns, shotguns, and one rifle. However, in the 12 months leading up to the shooting, Paddock had bought more than 55 firearms, mostly rifles. He'd also bought more than 100 firearm-related items, such as scopes, ammunition, and bump stocks. As an aside, all the weapons, ammunition, and accessories that Steven Paddock had purchased were purchased legally at gun stores throughout Nevada, Utah, California, and Texas. Background checks would have been performed for those purchases, and Paddock passed every one of them. In looking at Paddock's internet search history, it appeared to investigators that he began considering the idea of a mass shooting in the spring of 2017. In May of that year, he searched terms like Summer Concerts 2017 and Biggest Open Air Concert Venues in USA. In early September, he searched Las Vegas high-rise condos rent, and Life is Beautiful expected attendance. Side note, for the uninitiated, Life is Beautiful is another large-scale outdoor music festival held annually in downtown Las Vegas. In 2017, that festival was running from September 22nd to 24th, the week before Route 91. During the course of their investigation, authorities had discovered that Paddock had rented a room at the Ogden, a multi-level condo complex in downtown Las Vegas that overlooks the site of Life is Beautiful. Paddock checked into the Ogden on September 17th and, according to security footage, exhibited behavior which was similar to his time at Mandalay Bay. He moved a large amount of luggage between his car and his room, and he gambled extensively at several downtown casinos. Paddock had also done online searches about outdoor festivals and venues in other cities, including Boston's Fenway Park and La Jolla, California. He had even booked rooms at a hotel adjacent to the Lollapalooza festival in Chicago in August, 2017. Other internet searches by Paddock included terms like SWAT weapons, SWAT Las Vegas, and do police use explosives? Inside Paddock's room at Mandalay Bay, authorities found what could only be described as an arsenal. 24 different firearms were scattered around the room, along with thousands of rounds of ammunition, some loose, some in clips and magazines. There were also power tools, laptop computers, binoculars, cell phones, spotting scopes, a small sledgehammer, and multiple duffel bags and suitcases. There was a piece of paper on a table which appeared to contain handwritten trajectories, bullet drop calculations, and shot distances. Investigators also discovered that Paddock had wired up several small surveillance cameras so that he could be alerted to anyone approaching his room. There were cameras attached to the peepholes on the doors of both rooms, as well as a camera hidden on a room service cart in the hallway outside room 32135. Paddock was monitoring the cameras on a laptop computer, and it's believed that this was how he knew to fire through the room door at security officer Jesus campus and maintenance engineer Stephen Shuck. After searching Paddock's room and cataloging evidence, authorities turned their attention to his car, which was parked in the valet garage at Mandalay Bay. In it, they found more ammunition, including several loaded magazines for both AR-10 and AR-15 style rifles, as well as several pounds of ammonium nitrate, an explosive precursor, and 50 pounds of Tamarite, a product that's used to create explosive rifle targets. But the one thing that authorities were never able to find throughout their entire investigation, even after digging through every aspect of Steven Paddock's life, following up on 2,000 leads, watching 22,000 hours of video, and reviewing 252,000 images, was a motive. Paddock left no manifesto, no writings outlining his intentions, not even a suicide note. Meaning that to this day, years after the horrific shooting at Route 91 in Las Vegas, we still don't know what motivated him to open fire on that festival, taking the lives of 58 people and wounding hundreds of others. Although the scars of the tragedy of October 1st remain, There has been some healing for the city of Las Vegas, and the victims have been honored in a variety of ways. The Las Vegas Community Healing Garden, located in the Arts District near downtown Las Vegas, was erected just days following the shooting. It was built by volunteers as a place of remembrance for those affected by October 1st. The garden features 58 trees of life, donated by longtime Vegas headliners and residents, Siegfried and Roy as well as a remembrance wall with pictures, flowers, and other offerings from the community to signify their condolences. The Healing Garden also hosts an annual sunset ceremony held on the anniversary of the shooting. Each year, the mayor of Las Vegas reads the names of those who were lost, while at the same time, the marquees on the Vegas strip go dark in their honor. During the final game of their inaugural 2017-2018 regular season, Vegas Golden Knights owner Bill Foley, general manager George McPhee, and defenseman Derek Englund, who delivered an impassioned speech to the home opener crowd just days after the shooting, were joined by the family of October 1st victim, Nisha Tonks. Together, they raised a banner to the roof of T-Mobile Arena, officially retiring the number 58 in honor of those who'd been lost. The banner bore 58 stars, the names of the victims, and the inscription, Vegas Strong. As for the actual site of the shooting, across Las Vegas Boulevard from Mandalay Bay, in 2019, MGM Resorts, the owners of the site, had announced plans to use a portion of the grounds to build a community and athletics center, which would be home to sporting events and community gatherings. The remainder of the site be used as a parking lot for people attending events at T-Mobile Arena and the newly built Allegiant Stadium. Needless to say, this move did not sit well with families of the victims. Most felt it was incredibly disrespectful and insensitive. In March of 2021, the 1 October Memorial Committee posted an online survey to gather opinions regarding the construction of a permanent memorial to the victims of the shooting. During the two-week survey period, more than 6,000 responses were received. More than 65% of respondents felt it was either very or extremely important that the memorial be located at the actual Las Vegas Village site. Following the release of the results of that survey, MGM Resorts said they were willing to work with the committee and called their approach compassionate and thoughtful, further saying that establishing a permanent memorial was, quote, vital to the healing process. As of yet a location and design for the memorial has yet to be identified. In the meantime, the former Las Vegas village site, the site of the worst mass shooting in modern US history, a place where 58 people lost their lives and hundreds of others were injured, sits vacant and empty. Constant reminder of the tragedy of 10-1-17. History isn't always pretty. Sometimes it's downright awful, but it's still important to share and important to learn from. And I very much appreciate you joining me for this deep dive into one of Las Vegas's darkest moments. If you want to learn more about what unfolded at Route 91 on October 1st, 2017, including the response of the brave heroes who rushed to the scene, the outpouring of support in the hours, days, and weeks after the shooting, the investigation into the incident, and the tributes paid to victims following this tragedy, you can visit the show notes for articles, photos, videos, and more. For more of Las Vegas' fascinating, bizarre, and sometimes tragic history, follow Sin City Stories on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at SCStoriesPod. Also, be sure to subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are released. Sin City Stories is written, researched, and hosted by Jeff Walker and is a production of Walker New Media. Online at walkernewmedia.com.